Hello, people. Welcome back to the Stephen Sully study. Um, I have an interview. I've been looking forward to this interview for some time. I got introduced to this guy uh, via a friend of ours, mutual friend, a guy called Ash uh, at Wellwood Infinity. I've done some public speaking at some of his um, his events, which is pretty cool. And I imagine Keith Keith Mason he uh, he got connected to you via via that platform, or, or was it another way? Yeah, I think uh, I think Cash contacted me. Uh, I think he was liking a few of my a bit of my content on LinkedIn. Okay, and uh, he just you know he just said that you know uh, he said some very complimentary things uh, about about my partner was paralysed, and obviously you know me and my partner have overcome uh, two spinal strokes. And, uh, you know, we've, we've become like an household name over the last six months, you know, all for the right reasons. And uh, he just said that, you know, he, he admired uh, he admired me as a man. And, you know, from that conversation, uh, we're actually doing a book now. So we're writing the book, uh, which is a memoir about me and my honest journey. Okay. All right. Um I mean, I wasn't even going to sort of bring it up, but now you have. I mean, uh, I, I haven't researched too much what happened there with your wife, and I hope my, I hope you don't mind me asking you questions. But obviously, when I've seen you yeah, yeah. on your Instagram and obviously on your socials, you and her evidently have got this love and this connection together. But obviously, I saw she was in a wheelchair, and I and I did think, as a curious person, what happened there. So, if you don't mind me asking, I mean, exactly what did happen? Yeah. Uh, well, pretty much the owner. Uh, she had a car crash before she suffered this spinal stroke. Uh, she had a bad car crash, and uh, I believe she had a whiplash. So basically, having whiplash sometimes it stops the blood flow going from your spine up to your brain, which generally causes spinal strokes. And you know, Riona had a spinal stroke back in 2015. Uh, she was at home. Yeah, you got down the steps. Yep, and that's when she's damaged her spine uh, and then she, you know she woke up I believe uh, maybe a week later in uh, in Pinderfield's hospital in Wakefield uh, to be told that she was paralysed I mean pretty much she couldn't move any part of her body uh, you know <laughs> you just can't imagine that you know one day you're fit and healthy you're a school teacher you know you love going to the gym you know and the next minute you can't feel you can't move your body uh, and Somewhere down the line, it was a couple of months later. I just recently, I'd retired from rugby. I was still trying to find my feet, you know, because, you know, when you've played rugby league since you're seven years old, and then you just cut it off, you know, there's no manual for anybody to make that adjustment into, as I call it, normal civilized life. Because I've never been a, a type of civilian who wants to, not civilian, but someone who goes to work nine to five or, you know, when you're playing sport, you're in like a bubble, basically. And then that's why you see a lot of athletes turn to drugs and alcohol because they're looking for that high. And, uh, you know, for me, I went through a tough spell, but I always stayed in the gym. I was always in there. Uh, and obviously, you know, I got through that and, uh, you know, thank God. But, you know, I can tell people now, I can tell my, my story, testimony of that, you know, sports is one chapter of your life, not it's not your whole life. And I've always been the type of person that likes helping people. You know, yeah. if, if someone wants to come to me wholeheartedly and ask for help, now don't get me wrong, there's a lot of people out there who have to help and just use you. <clears throat> you know, I 
know, they just want to just use your kindness and, and use what you've got or who you know. And uh, generally the people who come who need help, uh, I'll always reach me hand out because that's what type of guy I am. Mm. So Rihanna reached out to me uh, and she asked me for trainer. Now I'd done my personal training qualifications while playing rugby. Uh, you know, something to fall back on, something that I knew, you know, fitness is something that is a big part of what I do, looking after my body. So I passed my personal training qualification. So when I retired, I had something to do. You know, obviously the other things I'm doing now, but uh, just to stay in the gym. So Rion reached out to me and said she had a problem with her legs, but she never said that she was paralyzed. So he says, oh, you know, can I come over and uh, would you train me? I said, sure. Yeah. So, so I'm at the gym and she travels, you know, 20 miles. Come and see me. I think it's quite a long way to come. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, she rocks up and she's in a Q7 and she jumps. Well, she doesn't jump out. She shuffles her bum out of the car and I'm still at the door. And I see her get out of the car and she's got these crutches. And I'm like, you know, are you, are you sure you're going to be all right to train me on her? She went, I forgot to tell you, I'm paralyzed from waist down. And I just like kind of just, I was quite, I kind of shocked. But at the same time, because I'm such an optimist, I was looking at her thinking, the fact that she's turned up and rocked up and wants to get in the gym and work out was something that struck with me. It, I admired that, you know, and I just said, you know what? Let's give it a go. Uh, let's see what we can do. So, you know, I'm not trained. I'm no doctor, no physician. I don't know how to train someone with a spinal cord injury. But what I did do, I used all my experience and I, I, I kind of worked around the injury. So when she came into the gym, she sat on a bum and we had the pulling machines and we were doing the pulling machines and all that kind of stuff. So it was only the first session. I just wanted to assess her and, and see how she got on. And it just went from there. And uh, she came for another six or seven more sessions. Uh, the next time she came, she brought a few of her uh, children with her. She came, in, came into the gym and we were just working a little stuff. Uh, but she was very driven, you know, and, I, and I, I admired that, you know. And it came to a point, it was probably about six weeks in. Now, Riona had to use a walking stick to take a step, you know. And, and, and for her to take 10 steps, it's like us going for a mile. It takes a lot of effort. Yeah. And I remember she felt strong. And she says to me, I reckon I, should do, I reckon I could do a squat. Like, and I looked at her and I thought, you know, she's crazy, this woman. I goes, well, if you want to try it, we can try a squat if you want. And you got to remember, she can't feel her legs. Uh, so I took her over to the wall and uh, stood at the wall. And she got below my shoulders. Goes, you ready? Goes, yeah, you ready? Let's go. And I went down and she went down with me and I could feel her weight on my shoulders. But it wasn't, she wasn't hanging on. She was actually doing it and I couldn't believe it. So she was squatting down, squatting down. She did normal squat. Yeah. And the effort she put in to stand back up, even though she held on the shoulders and I was supporting her and stuff, it was unbelievable. It was just unbelievable. And she came back up and she just stood there, looked at me and just tears burst out. And wow. she just started crying. And I just thought to myself, you know, <laughs> this is, uh, this isn't me training somebody. This is totally different, you know, and, uh, it's weird, you know, how we both met. But the fact that, you know, I helped to take the first step, I helped to do the squat, uh, it's incredible. And, you know, obviously, over the, over the last couple of years, you know, she's suffered another spinal stroke two years after I met her. 
uh, we didn't actually become an item until probably six to seven months after I met her because when I trained her, she trained for like eight weeks and then she just disappeared. She said to me, look, I can't train no more, Keith. My, my doctor's in the position of saying that I'm doing too much. Uh, I need to take the foot off the gas. And I wished her the best. I wished her the best and, and I said, you know, uh, stay in touch and uh, that's fine. That's totally fine. And I, and, I, and I wish you all the best and I hope you can walk. I hope you can be able to walk again. And so, she, you know, I didn't see her for a while. And then it must have been about two months later, she uh, put a post up onto, onto Facebook. Uh, and she split up with a business partner. Now, Rona's always been a person who likes to help people, likes to give, you know, give back. And, 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 and you know, for, 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 for society and charity and stuff. Even though she's going through a struggle herself, she's helping people yeah. at the time. Yeah. And I saw that she fell out with this, this business partner. And she put a status up on Facebook. I just thought, you know, I'm going to reach out to her and ask how she is. You know, I've not spoken to her for a while. How, how are you doing, uh, Riona? And I actually asked her if, if she wanted to go for a coffee. You want to go for a coffee anytime? We'll have a we'll have a catch up. And one be all, she got back to me. She says, you know what? I could do with a coffee. And I think it was that. I think it was the very next day we met at a friend's restaurant. We went to my friend's Turkish restaurant, and we sat down and. It wasn't like the trainer and Riona this time. It was Keith and Riona. And right. we just started talking about faith and, and God and, and, you know, my career and stuff and, and what I've had to overcome and, and the struggle I was going through at that time. We just clicked. We just clicked. You know, she said to me that she fell for me that, that, that night. She thought, I want to be with this man. And, you know, the rest is history, mate. You know, we've, yeah. uh, We've overcome so much. Oh, that's such such a moving and compelling story. And um, straight away, when you told me about describing her getting out the the car to come and train with you, and you didn't even realise that she had issues with her legs. Yeah, I straight away yeah. thought about all those people that I've been around. All those people that say, "Oh, I can't get out out, uh, can't get up uh, up up and out in the morning to go train into the gym, or I can't go for a run." What do you say to all those yeah. people that have excuses, knowing what she hmm. she's done? Well, I think this is where our story just is not impacting people in wheelchairs or disabilities, but it's impacting people all over the world. People who are in relationships, people who don't believe in marriage, uh, don't believe in partnerships because they've been scorned by a man or a woman. Uh, we just got, listen, bro, we've overcome so much. I've always been a fighter since I was a young kid. I've always been a driven person that wanted to succeed in life. And I think the combination of both of us together has <clears throat> put us out there in the stratosphere. Yeah. Because what we put out there is truth and, and realness, Yeah. which I'd like to think. Uh, but, you know, like I said, people look at our story and they must be saying to themselves, What's my excuse? Yeah. What is my excuse when this lady would love to go for a walk with a partner to the park? Would love to go to the restaurant and walk in a restaurant with a partner? Would love to go to the cinema hand in hand? We can't do that, bro. Yeah. So, you know, we have to, we've adapted and we've overcome. And I think people take a lot of inspiration from a story. The thing is with me and Riona, we, we are not people who are looking for attention. We're not people who feel sorry for themselves. You know, we have a big family. You know, we, you know, obviously the other stuff I'm doing with the acting, all that kind of stuff, that is my baby. You know, that's something that I really enjoy. Mm. But 
for me, family's most important. Family yeah. is my motivation. You know, my kids, uh, not just me and my owner, but all of us have been through it together. And that's made us more united uh, as a family. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, we can, we, can, we can achieve anything. We can achieve it. And, and I always say, leave with love. And people out there, who make excuses at the end of the day you're gonna look yourself in the mirror and you know one day you're looking in the mirror and everything all your all, all your opportunities are, are going to be gone yeah you know and to be good or to be great at something it takes effort it takes a tremendous amount of effort it takes sacrifice it takes dedication it takes getting knocked back day in day out and i live by the ethos of making myself uncomfortable every single day whether it's going for a 10 mile hike or a 10 mile run or being in the gym or helping my family, or being there as a father, or supporting my missus. Everything I'm doing every single day is I'm trying to improve a little bit better, a little bit more than I was yesterday. So, you know, we're we're <clears throat> we're go-getters, bro. You know, we want to we want the best out of life, and you know, unfortunately, right now, Rihanna's not where she needs to be, but I will continue to support until she gets there. Good man. I love that mindset. So you spoke about your rugby career. I've obviously done a bit of homework on you. Uh, you're a big fella, 6.2. Six, yeah. uh, six, uh, six, uh, um, you know, you you retired back in 2013. I know you went on, on to do uh, acting, which I want to talk to you about. But before we do, yeah. so... Was was your destiny always going to be a rugby player, a professional rugby player, or did you have other goals and a different mission when you were younger? Yeah, uh, you know, my childhood, my childhood itself is uh, is very colourful, indeed. I can tell you this right now: uh, I never completed a, st- a school. I got kicked out of four schools. Uh, you know, my, pretty much my destiny was going to be me ending up in jail because I grew up with single mom, five brothers and sisters. Uh, I was a kid always full of energy. Like, I had too much energy yeah. for any other kid. Uh, but I wasn't a bad kid, you know, and I got myself into a lot of trouble. Uh, so no father figured about. And I believe, you know, when you're, a, when you're a young man, you need that discipline because when you leave that <coughs> door and you go outside and you go with your mates, and generally my mates were a lot older than me, you know, the... A lot of them give me a lot of love, but a lot of them go up to no good. And uh, I went through a, a pretty bad spell there where I was uh, in trouble with the police quite a lot. Uh, but what I, what I did overcome is, is probably my biggest achievement, is turning my life around as a young kid. Rugby league was something that I was always good at, but I never had the discipline. I never had the focus because my environment was saying that I shouldn't make it. Where I'm from, I shouldn't make it. I shouldn't do you know being kicked out of all my schools uh believe it or not one of the schools i nearly actually finished the school but i got kicked out one week before we actually finished the school oh, dear. i uh I, I kicked off with my teacher and i ended up getting expelled and uh you know it looked like it looked like i was going nowhere fast and that actual school calls me back every couple of years now to go and speak to the kids in the in the uh at the school about you know me being a, a bugalugs you know a lovable rogue but I was never a bad kid. You know, I was naughty, but the thing is with me, I was always a scrapper. I was always into fights and I was sticking up for my friends and I'd stick up for my friends who probably didn't deserve to be stick up for. And I got myself in a, into a lot of trouble. Now, not many people know about this and I'm not, I wasn't proud of it at the time, but me looking back now and, and, and the things I've achieved since then is quite remarkable. So by the time I was 14, from the ages of 10 to 14, I'd been arrested 
uh, around 60 times and I went to court 45 times. Wow. Wow. What's the odds of me doing anything after that? Yeah. What's the odds, man? And, and the thing is, people don't really know this about me, but the, the odds were stacked against me, brother. Listen, I went to court at 14 for burglary. Uh, my friend knocked on the door. He asked me to go to this house, help him get some speakers out of this house, right? And me, very, very young. You know, I'm not giving myself no excuses, but I was young and I didn't quite know what he was doing. Now, the stuff I got, you know, I got into fights, you know, a choplifting and all that kind of stuff, what normal young kids do. Now, I went into this house. I took the speaker out and uh, we're running down the down the council estate and the coppers flash past and then we, we go for, you know, we run for it. I eventually got caught and I never knew this about going to court 45 times, but my probation officer told me. I went to Crown Court. I was 14, my friend was 16, and there was another guy there too. Now, I went to Crown Court in Bradford. Uh, there was a big chance I was going to get sent to jail, but because I was too young, I was still 14, uh, they couldn't actually send me to jail, which I didn't know until I was stood in front of the judge. And that's where my life changed. That's where I set uh, my goal out to be a somebody. Yeah, I came out of court. The two friends, my, my friend who I did all the misdemeanors with, by the way, he went, he went to jail for two years. Uh, the other guy got sent to jail for two years. And I walked out, and my mum was there. And I thought to myself, you know what? Like, my mum, my brother's an alcoholic. I had a sister who was a heroin addict. I thought to myself, you know, I've, I've put my mum through enough now. I need to change my life. I need to really roll my sleeves up because I could see where my life was going. Mm. And I'd seen people die. I'd seen, I'd been in crack, crack dens and smack, smack dens. I believe it or not. When you're a young kid walking into places where I would, it'd be a nightmare for my kids to see anything like that. And for me to get through that and, and uh, achieve what I've done is remarkable. But I, I definitely thought, I definitely think that God had, you know, he had a plan for me mm. because <clears throat> the odds were stacked against me. But I'm going to change that through effort and will and dedication and discipline. And that's the way I live my life right now. And that's why I've achieved all the way through my life. Uh, and I always say you change through two different emotions in life. And that's through pain and desperation. Mine was desperate. I was desperate to get out of that situation. I was. The thing is, for me, always talented at rugby league. But no one really thought I was going to do anything because of the way I was. Now. I walked out of court and it was like an epiphany. I just thought to myself, you know what? I'm done with that life now. You need to grow up. You need to behave and you need to make your mum proud. And from the very next day, on my stuff, I started smoking weed. I used to smoke a bit of weed and stuff. And I had this vision in my mind that I wanted to be a Super League player. You know, it's so profound, a 14-year-old kid, to flip, my, to flip my life 180, just like that, and say, that's not for me. I can see where I'm going. It was very profound for a young kid to think like that. And from the very next day, I started going, um, go out, please, do an interview. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so the very next day, uh, Steve, you know, I started running. Uh, I used to go into the graveyard on Christmas Day. I was 15 years old. I'd train for two hours. I'd do hill sprints up there. Uh, I'd take a tackling, a boxing bag, believe it or not, down to the football field where I lived. Right. And it'd be thunder and lightning and I'd be hitting that bag and I had this dream and this vision that I wanted to be somebody. 
And I hit that bag for two hours straight. And they're pissing down me. And I remember my friends were stood up on the bridge and they're all smoking weed and stuff. And I'm like, what's, what's Keith doing, man? Is he nuts? He's off his head. What's he, you know, they even tell me now, even these people I see him 20 years later. And they say, Keith, you were all right, weren't you? Because we were all taking piss out of you, you know, and saying, yeah. what's he doing? What's he doing? I had this dream, I had this conviction. I could see where my life was going. And it's, it's funny, it's like I was running away from that life. I was running away. And that's why I just, you know, I did what I did in sport because I was hungry. Yeah. You know, hunger hunger counts a lot, man. You need to be hungry in everything you do <clears> in life. <throat> are you going to regress or someone's going to catch you up and take, take over you? And I, and I use, you know, that's why I've been successful, not just from rugby, but in the businesses I do, in, you know, taking care of my partner and obviously uh, uh, producing and acting. Yes, powerful story so far, Keith. Um, I think, so I run sales teams. I've got a sales company and I'm actually in my uh, art studio here at Woodbury House. And um, we always say the same stuff to salespeople. It's external people always going to look at you when you're on a mission and they're going to judge you, they're going to question you and they're going to to try and throw a bit of doubt your way. The only person that needs to believe in your mission is you. And as you just said there, you yeah. was in the park hitting a bag. No one else could see the destiny that you were going to hit apart from yourself. And on yeah. top of that, you need that hard work, which I love. And that's why I love interviewing not just business people, but also athletes because athletes mm. and raw business people, they've got the same mindset. It doesn't matter what happens, whether something happens in their career or yeah. something happens in the market, they find a, a way to win. And that's what I love about interviewing you guys. Yeah. So I, I was going to ask you, actually, you're built like a heavyweight, right? You're a big guy and you just mentioned <laughs> boxing there. And I'm, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a big boxing fan. I've you know, yeah. had a few boxing fights myself. Was there ever yeah. uh, a chance of you maybe not going down the rugby route and maybe hitting something like boxing or another sport? Yeah. Well, you know, I used to train boxing. I had a few fights when I was a kid. Uh, and believe it or not, you know, uh, I don't, if you like boxing, you probably know one of my best friends, Joe Carl Zaggy. Oh yeah. Amazing fighter. Undefeated. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. So Joe's, Joe's basically, he's my little girl godfather. Oh man. Uh, amazing. I Joe about, yeah. I met Joe about 11 years ago. We're very, very close. Uh, in fact, he came to Leeds, uh, supported me in a big court case, uh, against Huddersfield Giants. He got on a, he got on a train, come all the way to Leeds and supported me. That's a proper friend. Good man. Uh, but I met, I met Joe, I met Joe from Mickey Rourke and we'll come to that, but Mickey Rourke, obviously I befriended Mickey and Mickey got me into the films. Yeah. Know, and that's why I'm doing what I'm doing now. Uh, but Joe's very, he's a very, we're very, very close. You know, I was there for his, his, his dad's funeral, uh, you know, and he, and Joe struggled, you know, Joe struggled, uh, life after sport. And I remember Joe telling me that, you know, when you retire, Keith, you're a long time retired. So he says, you know, I know you because when I were retired, I was quite young. But at the mo- at that time, you know, rugby league, uh, I was disenchanted. I had a big court case and I just lost the love. And if I can't do something to my maximum ability, there's no point doing it at all. And Joe was saying to me, you know, you're a long time retired. And then after that, you know, I did. I just struggle because it's difficult. It's, 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 I can't explain it. If you've not beat, if you've not played at a high end, I mean, I played at the very top as a rugby league player. Joe was the very top at his profession. When you don't get that same high, you look you look for that high, you know, in different places. Try and replace uh, it, yeah. Yeah. So, so basically, <laughs> quite a long story short. Joe said to me, he says, if you'd have been, if you'd have started 
boxing as a youngster, I reckon you'd have been a cruiserweight champion. Now, that coming from Joe Calzaghe, I will take that every day of the week. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not a fighter, but you know, I can look after myself. But I'd rather look after my family and, and, and put my energy into good use, you know, put my energy into me bettering myself. But yeah, you know what? I'd, I'm probably a bit long in the tooth now, but you know, if a fight came up and it was good money, I'd, I would step in the ring and I'd probably get Joe to train me. Oh, I'd love to see that, mate. I would absolutely love to see it. And I would definitely pay the money as well. So um, for, for I would definitely want to talk about your, your acting career, et cetera, because I know uh, uh, through Rook, obviously you, you just mentioned there that you, you've been in, in, in yeah. a few different things. But with your rugby career then, who, who were some of the best teams and some of the most favourable moments that you had playing rugby? Uh, you know, well, obviously, you know, starting at Wakefield, believe it or not, before I signed, uh, when I when I kind of sorted my life out, went back to my old team, just the more. And uh, I got selected for Yorkshire. I got selected for the England schoolboys, which is the best 25 kids in the country. So I went from going to jail to coming out of court. Within 12 months, I was playing for my country. That's nice. how fast yeah. my life turned around, you know? And that was through, like I said, sacrifice. And then when I came back from France, we played France. Uh, all the boys have been signed, uh, signed professional, by two players. So I had to go trial, you know, thinking, why, why, why aren't I signed, you know? And I went to Bradford. I, I went to Bradford Bulls for a couple of weeks, uh, probably about a month and a half. They turned around and said, look, we're not going to sign you on a, on a full-time contract. We'll continue to pay your bus fare, which is six, bu- six buses four times a week. Uh, I decided not to go. So then I went to Castleford, uh, same thing. Yeah. Trial there. They turned around to me and said, look, we just don't think you're right at this moment in time. We're not going to sign you. Now, any kid what's being knocked back, not just once, but twice, would generally give in, right? Yeah. You'd lose you'd lose belief in yourself. A lot of people would and anyway. Because where I... Yeah. yeah. And, and listen, you know, I was, I was, you know, I was gutted. But what always kept me going was my old life, where I come from mm. and where I am now. Mm. and I thought I've got to keep going I've got to keep going because there's nothing else for me to do mm. then I went to Leeds and I trialled at Leeds Leeds a great team great young team I was there for six months uh, and I remember one day Dean Bell who was the captain of Wigan and New Zealand a, a legend of a player pulled me one, to one side and said listen Keith uh, I don't think you're ever going to be a Super League player now knowing I've been rejected once twice and now I've got this man who's been there and done it telling me I'll never be a Super League player uh, that was the last straw the, camel, the camel's back was just about broken and I remember leaving there and thinking to myself you know what am I going to do what, what am I going to do in my life you know I've give it, given it my best shot and now this guy's telling me I'm never going to play Super League and a lifeline came an old guy came up to me and said listen Keith give it one last shot so I did and I achieved my goal Wakefield Trinity came in, offered me a deal. I think it was for five thousand pounds for the year. And uh, when I signed that contract, I thought, "Wow, I made it." You know, my advice to any kids out there is, you know, if you don't succeed in life, never let it be for the lack of effort. Give it your absolute best because when you give it your absolute best, not only do you become better, but you learn things about yourself and you learn things about other people. And if one door shut, doesn't mean all doors shut. You've got to keep persevering, keep, keep pushing forward and have belief in yourself. 
And that's what I did. And when I signed for Wakefield, I signed for a team that was at the bottom of the ladder. And I signed for them. And I played the first game and I was like a man possessed. <coughs> I did like 30 carries, 50 tackles. Uh, it was a trial game. They signed me after that game. And then we went for 11 games unbeaten. I don't know whether because I'd signed for them and I've come in and I've, yeah. you know, I've, I've given that given that boost, but we won the next 11 games. Now, Wakefield wasn't really a good team and I came into that team and the, the following year, we actually got to the final. Wow. And that, and that same year when I signed for Wakefield, I actually played Super League. I was 17. It's unheard of. So from that guy saying to me, you're never going to be a Super League player. In fact, that was probably my greatest failure ever because it lit a fire inside of me I didn't know I had. And it just made me hungry and made me want to win at everything, like in fitness. I was actually the fittest kid, fittest player in the whole squad. Not the academy, the reserves and the first team. I was a 17-year-old kid and we'd do Californias, we'd do bleep tests, and I would beat everybody. And the, obviously the head coaches saw me and they thought, we love this, we like this kid. And they gave me my first team debut. So not only did I prove him wrong, 12 months after playing first team football, I played uh, around 25 games. I was 18 years old. I got selected to play for Wales, a full international game uh, the day before. Uh, we played England down at Wrexham. Uh, they had some of the best players in the world playing for them. I think we had two Super League players in our Welsh team. Uh, I am English, by the way, but I had Welsh heritage. Got the call and said, you want to come down? You're going to play. I was having a really good year. Went down to uh, Wrexham and I saw my idol, Kieran Cunningham, which eventually I ended, up, I ended up playing with Kieran and we won a Challenge Cup together. And I remember Kieran being in the toilet, being sick, and he came out of the toilet and I'm like, he's been sick. He's, he's an awesome player. But, you know, you, you see a lot of stuff in rugby league and you see some of the best players in the world are more nervous than you, trust me. Uh, and obviously, that's just part of the process of how they deal with uh, game nerves. Yeah. Now, I played in that game. Played in that game, and we, we was winning 26-10. Half time against uh, one of the best teams in the world, England. They eventually won that game. I think it was 38-32. And I got the man of the match in that game. And the team called... The stop phone. Oh, yeah. Come in, mate. Come in. Mm-hmm. It's my mate's going to fix this for you. All right. It's just there, Chris. Uh, so, do so from that game, uh, my teammate came up to me and says, oh, Keith, he says, uh, listen, Keith, the Storm want to sign you. Because do? Because the Storm, Melbourne Storm. And I'm like, Melbourne Storm? Are you for real? Because now, nah, mate, they want to sign you. Melbourne Storm have probably been the best team in the world for the last 20 years. They've won 10 premierships in the last 20 years. Uh, and I couldn't believe what it was saying. Come to think of it, only, only 18 months before, I was getting told by Dean Bell I'd never be a Super League player. Mm-hmm. Well, he's right, because I end up signing for NRL, which is the best competition in the world. I, uh, the same team that said to me I, I wasn't good enough, they came back and offered me a four-year deal, ironically, for the first team, not the academy, the first team. And Melbourne flew over from Australia. Uh, I went to play for Great Britain uh, down in South Africa. Uh, I sat down with Chris Johns. Uh, they offered me a deal. So I had to sign for leave for four years, which they offered me quite good money. 
uh, a lot more money than what Australia offered me. But I would be the only player in Australia. Right. Uh, one player, Adrian Morley, English player. And I signed for Melbourne. I made history. I was the youngest, and I still am the youngest ever player to go out there and make my debut. Uh, I scored in my debut, but you know I had the most fantastic time over there. You know I lived with Cameron Smith, who's probably the greatest player ever to play the game. Wow! And I lived with Cameron, and I played with Billy Slater, uh, Cooper Cronk, some of the best players of all time. Uh, but the experience was fantastic. Now I stayed there for two years in Melbourne. It was brilliant for my, uh, you know, development as a human being. Uh, you know, having to leave home and, and learn how to cook and clean and, you know, look after yourself because I'd never done that before. I had my mum looking after me, basically. <laughs> uh, and then I came back and signed for St. Helens. St. Helens offered me some good money to come back. And St. Helens was a team that, yep. You do, you know uh, Mel Dean? No, mate. M- Mel Dean, I think he played, who did he play for? Um, he's Rio Ferdinand's personal trainer, but he was a, a pro rugby player. If I showed you a picture of him, you, you probably know him. He was on my podcast before. But when you said that name, I I, um, I, I, I thought he might have played for them, but maybe I'm wrong. But um, anyway, yeah, cool. Yeah, he, he probably plays uh, Union. I played with the league. It's two different codes. Right, okay. Uh, probably played with Union. So I came back, I came back to St. Helens. Uh, they had a, a fantastic team. They had the likes of Paul Schofield, uh, Sean Long, right. Lens, Kieran Cunningham. And uh, they needed a forward, they needed a prop. So they offered me some good money and I, and I came back. Uh, but I'm still friends with all the guys in Melbourne. You know, I'm still friends within a WhatsApp group. And 18 years later, you know, we're on there every day having a banter and stuff. And, you know, you can't, you cannot be being in a team, uh, you know, and learning from great players. But the friendships after, you know, when you leave the game and you stay in contact with these men and these people, uh, it's fantastic, and I went to I went to St. Helens, signed there in 2003. Uh, tremendous team. They were struggling at the point at, at that point in time, but two years two years on the bounce, they won the grand final, which is like the Premiership, and they needed a bit of help. So I came in and uh, bolstered their pack a little bit. I was only 21. <clears throat> I was 21 years old. I was a young kid. You know, come to think of it, it's a far, it's a far cry from that seventeen-year-old kid saying, "I've never played Super League, and now I'm playing." Yeah. Not only for Melbourne, who was one of the best teams in the world, but St. Helens were the best team in, in England. Uh, the following year, we got to the final. We got to the Challenge Cup final, which is equivalent to the FA Cup final, uh, which was probably my best rugby league memory, bar my debut, my best rugby league memory, playing of eighty thousand people at Cardiff Millennium Stadium on a red-hot summer's day. Now, the thing for that final, we had to play all the top teams to get there. Now, if, you, if you're if you in the FA Cup, sometimes you, you play a non-league team, don't you? You, you get drawn with a non-league team, mm-hmm. a Division One team. We, unluckily, got drawn by the five best teams in Super League. So we went from playing Bradford, then we played Leeds, then we played Hull, and then we beat Uddersfield in the semi-final. I reached my first final. Now, Challenge Cup final, it's been around 100 years. It's probably the biggest competition you can play in in rugby league. And uh, it's something that I remember watching as a young kid, the likes of Ellery Anley, uh, but it's 
played Wigan. I played for Saints. We played Wigan. Wigan and St. Helens is probably the biggest derby in world rugby. They hate each other. Right. They absolutely despise each other. So we normally play on Good Fridays. The intensity to, to them to them games are massive. And to play in a final, to drive down the street of Cardiff and just have like 40,000, 50,000 people walking through the streets, red and white, it was just an amazing, it was an amazing uh, experience. Yeah. You know, the thing is, I was just, I'd just turned 22 and I was so relaxed. I was so relaxed and I was so prepared and I was so ready. And I think leading up to the, the final, the boys would played really, really well. Everybody were playing really well. Uh, the unity of the team was fantastic. Uh, and it, it was easy for us because you had so many superstars in one squad mm. so I mean not a lot of players get that chance to do that when you're playing with great players they make you look great they make you better yeah because you raise your game and uh, well that's testament so confident, you know? that's testament in life isn't it having good business partners around you good soulmates around you um, yeah. you know, or having good, uh, just good relationships because people either drain you of your energy or they resonate your energy. You know, they pick you up, and obviously, being in a professional rugby team yeah. um, is is definitely definitely testament to the fact that you, you need those good, solid people around you. Yeah, and I my my saying is, you show me a crowd, and I'll show you a future. And you know, our future looked bright because my crowd in that team was full of stars, full of good people, full of not just superstars, but hard workers, yeah. grinders, relentless. You know, we were tough in defence and, and just flamboyant. And I remember walking out there, Steve, and uh, Abide With Me, the song, you know, Abide With Me, was singing. Uh, the lady was singing the song and I, I, I walked down the tunnel and I don't know if you've been to Millennium Stadium, but it's amazing. I have played at Wembley. I played at Twickenham. I think the Millennium Stadium is better than all, all three of them. Uh, it was a red hot day. It was a bank holiday in May 2004. And I walked out and the fireworks were going off. Bang, 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 bang. And the stadium was full. It was just red and white. And just the raw, it's like, uh, I can't explain it, but I just embraced it. I embraced it and I enjoyed the moment because you know a lot, of, a lot of players get to finals for the first time they freeze mm. you know they're like whoa this is too much for me but for me where I've been from where I've come what I'd, what I'd, what I'd, what I'd, sorry, what I'd had to overcome to get to that point I loved it because mm. I knew where I, where I was in my life 10 years before that I was going to, I was going nowhere and here I am playing in a Challenge Cup final at 22 years old looking up because it's like a coliseum and just had a big smile on my face knowing that my mum's up in that crowd up there and my mum was crying her eyes out. I mean, my friend told me my mum had tears down her face. Because it's not just a final, it's like an occasion for rugby league. Everybody comes from all over the country. Yeah, it's a Every big fan deal. Yeah. come to watch the Challenge Cup final. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we came out victorious in that, in that game and I, I, had a, I, had a good, I had a good game. I had a really good game. And I just, can't play it, mate. But you know what? When I picked that trophy up, because it is an, a beautiful trophy, I picked that trophy up. When I picked it up, my life flashed before my eyes. Incredible. I just saw this young kid. All came at that one point, and I, I actually felt like then I'd arrived. Yeah. I'd succeeded. I was a somebody, you know, and uh, it wasn't just for me, though. It was it was for my mum. 
you know, because the, the sacrifices she made, she put all her dreams on all for us to be, to be who I am, you know, and and the more you get older, the more you appreciate because you become a parent yourself. Yeah. And, you know, my son, my son, believe it or not, signed for Wigan, which is the enemy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I had a good, good couple of years at St. Helens. I won the league there the year after. And then I spent seven years at Huddersfield Giants where I got the player of the year in 2009. Got to another Challenge Cup final. We played at Twickenham, which we lost against St. Helens. Got to another final in 2009 uh, at Wembley, which was a, another dream come true because all the, all the Challenge Cup finals you watch when you're a kid are all at, are all at Wembley. I ended up playing there. We lost that final, which was... Uh, was a was a killer, but yeah, I mean, listen, everything I've learned through rugby league, it's learnt me everything about perseverance, character, never giving up, leadership, teamwork, and all the good things I've learnt from my career, I use them now. Yeah, into day to day life, and I think that's why you see you see me doing the things I'm doing because even like producing my first film. I've pretty much got everybody involved, like, you know, the locations, the actors, and, uh, you know, you've got to believe in them. You've got to have some, some some chemistry. You've got to, you know, believe in that person. And, and I've kind of controlled the set like a captain. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. for me, it, it, for me, I mean, I've been on film sets for and there's, Mickey Rock said to me, he don't like actors. Right? <laughs> and he, he loves athletes. And I could understand because you get these people who, Get the little two seconds of limelight, but they take advantage of it, and it goes to their head, to me, baby. That's not a really nice, yeah, and it's not a nice trait, mate. You know, I took my partner down to London, and uh, was in this. I mean, this TV series called Jack's All Dead, and there were some people just really kicking off, and I'm like, you know, what? Are you like this all the time? You know, are you like this? When, you know, I'm thinking to myself, are you like that when you're at home with your family? Yeah. You know, is any is any is any any need for that? You know, because you can get stuff done by not talking down to people and swearing at people and just being uh, polite and having good energy. I just hate it when people are they yeah. think they they think they're so yeah. important or they think they're yeah. they're God's gift. They have a right to speak yeah, down to yeah, people, yeah. and you know it. You know, it reminds me of mm. you can tell a lot about someone when they're in a restaurant. The way they talk to a waiter or waitress tells you a lot about that person mm. and um i yeah. that's what it reminded me of when you were talking about being on the film set there mm. i think i always believe that you know uh green rises to the top you know what i mean and i think through life you're gonna confront about eight percent nonsense and 20 percent good if that makes sense yeah you know whether it's people reaching out to you on linkedin or it's hard to find someone who has the same beliefs and values as yourself mm. and someone who was not in it for them, someone who was in it for the whole picture. And like there again, you cannot succeed on your own. I could not succeed as good as I have without the support of my family, without that foundation of having my partner there, children there. It's a, te- it's a team effort, bro. Mm. Life is a team effort. And you get to a point where Eventually, someone will call on you and you'll be able to give them an helping hand and lift them up like Mickey Rock did me. Mickey Rock gave me a call. Got to be in a movie. Gives me an opportunity. What have I been doing ever since? I've been giving people opportunities left, right and centre and saying, there you go. Because I know that these people I give opportunities to, 
they really appreciate it. And there's yeah. no better feeling than giving someone an opportunity and they really appreciate it. And the funny thing is, you could give that same opportunity to someone you've known all your life and they wouldn't appreciate it. Yeah. So you mentioned about the transferable skill, obviously being a captain, being an athlete, especially in, specifically in rugby. It gave you that determination, motivation to um, transfer that skill into acting. But how did that come about? Because you, you mentioned you got a call out the blue almost and then from Mickey Rock. And yeah. then is it is that how you transitioned or what happened What happened there? No, so I, I, played, I played at Wembley in 2009 uh, for the Giants. And... After the game, Tom's got fine. After the game, we got invited to uh, Springfellas, a few other boys, by a guy called Christy Wellen. Now, Christy Wellen's dad is the man who wrote Terrace of Fire, which is a very old film. Uh, his dad wrote the film. Just thought I'd throw that in there for some reason. And uh, <laughs> so he got an invite to, to Springfellas in Covent Garden. So me and a few of the boys went to Covent Garden. Now, this is back in 2009. A couple of months before that, I watched a film called The Wrestler and it had Mickey Rock in the film and I, and I just thought it was a tremendous film and I thought his acting in it was, was, was top-notch. It's a really good film, actually. It's quite it's quite um, depressing at some parts. You feel really sorry for him, don't you, in that film? Yeah. Yes. And it was like his, pretty much like his life. He, he, he was a star and then he just self-destructed, put it all away. And this film was his comeback film. That's when I met Mickey Rock on his comeback when he was on fire. Now, I was in Stringfellas. I was at the bar, you know, having a drink, drowning my sorrows because we lost the game. And then I saw this big black guy walking and I saw this guy behind him. And the guy had a waist jacket, right? So, like, my arms out now. His arms are out. He had a red leather waist jacket, he had a longer. I remember looking at his arms and his arms were really like, you know, lean and muscly. And I was like, you know, if someone's got a good body, I like, I look at them, you know, all right, he works out. And then I looked and I thought, that's Mickey Rock. That's Mickey Rock. I watched him a couple of months ago. He's in the wrestler. And I'm speaking to my mate and my mate's just looking at me like, what are you talking about? Now, my mate was four or five years younger than me. He didn't even know Mickey Rock was. I says, oh, never mind. And I thought, I need to go say hello to this guy. I need to say hello to him. For some reason, uh, I've always been a bold type of guy. Like, you know, if I want to do something, I do it. Yeah. Like, not just say hello to somebody, but if I have a nunch and I want to do it, I have a good feel, a gut feeling about it, I'll just do it. I'll get it done. Uh, not think about it. So I went up to his bodyguard, and his bodyguard was called Derek, and I said, hey, Derek, can I, could I say hello to Mickey? He goes, yeah, sure, kid. You say he walked over to Mickey. He's, he whispered his ear. And then Mickey looks up. He looks over at me. He goes, yeah, so come here. So he, he, he waves me over. So I go over to him. And we've got his Challenge Cup suits on. Grey suit, black tie, black shirt. There's about six of us in there. So we all look like, you know, like a team. And he looked at him. He sat down. There's a strippers dancing there. You know, women you know, with the brows and all that kind of stuff. And I says, hey, Mickey, uh, great to meet you man and uh, I really like the wrestler I loved you in that film and he's like he's, he's, he's sat there listening to me looking at me looking up, looking me up and down like you know who's this guy who's this big guy yeah. and I says uh, you know I love the film I goes well that film like is that a bit like your life he goes yeah 
pretty much, kid. Hmm. And he goes, "It's what I get, man. Are you a gangster? Are you an athlete? We had the suits on, and obviously he caught the other guys over there. So he's thinking, well, heavies, right? And I says, no, 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 no. I said, I play, I play sport. I play rugby. Uh, I played at Wembley today in the final. She goes, you know what? I think I watched you today on, on, on in my hotel room on, on the because on, it's on BBC. Yeah. And I goes, I watched the rugby game Wembley. <laughs> you because yeah, he goes because I fucking love rugby, man. You guys are fucking tough. And that was it. We just got fucking talking, and we're like, you connected like, uh, straight away, yeah. And he were like. Hey, hey, he's like to his dad, hey, look at this kid, look at this kid, he's a big fucking kid. And he said, do you want a drink? you want a drink? I said, sure, because you, you, want, you want some food? Because you can buy you can buy food and bring your pizza and stuff. Said, yeah, sure. So we sat down and I, I walked back to the mess. Fucking hell, it's fucking Mickey Rowe. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this is the only highlight of my day because obviously we lost <laughs> in the final. And I'm saying to him, I fucking can't believe this. I can't not believe it. And I sat down and... He stood to his word. He bought me. He bought me and my mates all my teammates a few drinks. He bought us a big, massive pizza, big, massive pizza, and uh, the woman took a bra off and, and threw in the bra. And he's like, "Yeah!" And he grabs the bra and he puts them down. And he's rubbing them on his, you know, on his, on his bits and pieces. <laughs> and then he pulls it out and he grabs it like a rugby ball. Basically, he grabs it like this. Yeah, he screws it up. And he's like, "You ready?" And he's and he throws the bra to me like a rugby ball, and we're just we're just having this little moment where we're just fucking <laughs> having fun with this movie star. And I'm like, this is absolutely crazy. So he did me a call back over. He goes, "Hey, come here. Just come here, mate." Because yeah, he goes, "Because here, where are you going to be in two weeks?" I went, "I'm probably training with you. You know, play rugby. I've got commitments and that." He goes, "Listen, man, I want I want to I want to invite you as my guest to the uh, GQ Awards." I went, GQ Awards. I went, yeah, it's like a big event, you know, and I'm up for the man of the year and I'd love you to come with me. I went, really? He goes, yeah, take my number. I thought, well, this, this cannot be real. <laughs> now he's giving me his number. So I said, sure. He goes, hey, Jack. So he went to his car. I said, Jack, give me, give, me, give me your number. I took Mickey's number. I had Mickey's number in the phone and then he took my number and then he rang me. So I had it stored. And he says, what, he goes, what, are you, what are you doing now, kid? I went, I don't know. He goes, well, listen, we're going to go to a club called the BLC Club, which is the British, uh, British luxury club in London somewhere. He says, you want to come with us? I went, sure. So him and Derek gets up and Jack gets up and they get in the, the BMW or the way outside for me. Mickey's going, come on, follow us, jump in this cab here. So we get in the cab, we follow Mickey and uh, we just go on this little adventure. So we're following Mickey around. We get to this bar. Mickey goes inside the bar. I'm stood outside. I says, oh, my Mickey. Uh, my name's Keith Mason. She radios through. And then we go downstairs. So we go downstairs. The players go downstairs. We're just like, you know, this is a bit surreal. He starts arm wrestling a few of the players. And he whoops my teammate. who was very strong. He's got big, big arms. 15 stone. He whoops him on both arms. Right? And then my friend walks over. who's six foot five, 19 stones. He starts wrestling him. He beats him on one arm. Then the other arm, which is his, his right arm, he tears off his bone. He tears the muscle off his bone. So because he's pissed up, he's drinking tequila. Boom. And I come in and go, Mickey, kiss a guy. He goes, oh, I can't get I can't. Because what's he goes, my fucking arm. I think I've, I think I've pulled it. And if you look at him now, he's got a band on his arm 
and he's got that that much bicep left of his arm. Oh. Basically, he tore his bicep off the bone while he was out. Didn't even flinch. And uh, we started talking. He was stood there, I was stood here, and his bodyguard was stood there. And Mickey's looking at me, looking at his bodyguard, and he just starts crying. He first started crying. And I'm just, is he all right? What's, what's up with Mickey, Derek? He went, no, it's all right, kid. He just said that you remind him of his brother. Yeah. His brother, Joe, uh, died of cancer. Actually, we know what is in He pointed up. Oh. And he was crying. And I just thought, this is a very surreal moment, a very profound moment that the guy's looking at me thinking I remind him of his brother. And I always think to myself, you know, did Mickey look after me because I reminded him of Joe because Joe was his best friend. And uh, that was my first time meeting Mickey Rock. Uh, two weeks later, uh, it was the, the awards night. I won the Players Player, the Man of Steel and the Player of the Year. I had a really good year that year, 2009. And then I got a phone call off Jack's uh, agent. and said, look, it, it, it's this Tuesday. So, uh, the GQ awards were on Tuesday so I, I made an excuse up to the coach and said that you know I was, wasn't well uh, I wasn't going to miss this for the world mm-hmm. so I went down to Knightsbridge Mickey got me an hotel so I went down to Knightsbridge checked in at the hotel <laughs> said to the hotel you know my name's Keith Mason Mickey Rock's got me a, a room and she went oh yeah that's uh, £400 a night for two nights so I went £400 <laughs> I don't think this is uh, I don't think this is in the deal I, I, I don't have 100 pounds to pay for an hotel room because no don't worry about it make his pay for it you've got a, you've got a mini bar and stuff so not only is he inviting me down but he got me two nights at the uh, beautiful uh, hotel in Knightsbridge lovely we got in a taxi me and my friend went over to uh, the Royal Opera House in Covent Garden went upstairs Mickey was down in the auditorium I remember Jason Statham gave Mickey the, the Man of the Year award and uh, I was stood at the top of the steps. And I remember Guy Ritchie coming up the steps and Guy Ritchie went past me. He goes, I didn't make you all right. Shut me hand. Oh, what the hell? And then Eva <laughs> Mendes walks past me and I'm looking at the mirror going, Eva Mendes, man, what? this is crazy. And then Jermaine Jackson walks past me. David A comes up, shakes me hand. And then I remember seeing Jason Statham coming up with Mickey Rock. And then Mickey gets at the top of the steps and I have my shirt for him and I throw him his shirt. goes, there you go, Mickey. goes, ah, cheers, Keith. And he puts my shirt on. He's walking around. He's got Mason on his back. And he just won the man of the year. And uh, GSS Stephen came up to me and goes, all right, Keith, mate, I've heard all good things about you. How you doing, mate? You all right? <laughs> I went, yeah, yeah, cool. So That's then, a good uh, impression, that. Just, we had... <laughs> oh, cheers, mate. <laughs> so uh, me, Mickey and Jason, we just hung out all night. We was in a corner. And pretty much everybody were looking at us. Uh, we went from the Comet Garden. We went to Jason's Bar, which is uh, called the Wellington in, in Knightsbridge. And we got to the point where we had his pants around his ankles and we had his, we had his penises out nearly. And, uh, you know, dancing with Jason Statham and Mickey Rock, he just couldn't write it. Uh, so after that night, he invited me over to New York. Uh, end of season, five weeks later, I flew out to New York. I went to stay with Mickey for a week uh, at his place in, in, in uh, Greenwich Village in, in New, uh, down New York where all the stars live. And... Uh, I just couldn't quite believe it, you know. He got me, a, he got me a plane over there, and the next minute I'm chilling with a movie star. And then, uh, then he flew me over to Beverly Hills. He, he flew me over to Beverly Hills. We we stayed at the Sunset Marquee for a week, and then we we moved into his big house, uh, which is one one drive down from Rodeo Drive, which is called Camden Drive. 
in a big Beverly Hills mansion. Uh, we every time we come to London, we'd hang out. We'd go to the Jonathan Ross show. We'd go to res- restaurants. <coughs> and then that's how the the film role came up. You know, he, he gave me a call. It was about a week after I won my court case against Huddersfield Giants, which was my a team I played uh, for many many years. And just give me a call and says, you know, Keith, I've got an opportunity for you. Do you want to start a film alongside me? I went, this is good news. And just what I was thinking. And I thought, yeah, sure, Mickey, when is it? So I was still playing, I was playing for Castleford then. I said, oh, it's going to be next week and I'll only need you for a day, but I'm, I'm, you're going to get paid. And I'm sure you've got lines. So I'm still, I can't believe what I'm hearing. And I said, sure, I'll be there, Mickey. So I made sure that I wasn't training and uh, went down there. Lo and behold, I had 13 lines, which is probably about the same amount as Arnold Schwarzenegger in Terminator. <laughs> and uh, I played Mickey's henchman. I played I played uh, Mr. Steiner. And it was a full day's work. I remember uh, Joe gave me a call because Joe, Joe was in London. He was staying at the Paddington. And oh, come over, man, because you know, we're all good friends, me and Joe. And Joe came over. Uh, I ended up staying at Joe's house that night in Paddington. We went out for had a good night. And I just did the film, and everything just felt, it felt, you know, felt natural because I would not only were doing it with Mickey Rourke, but you know, because I knew him, I wasn't as nervous. And the casting director and the director was it was just a cool setting, and I did it, and I saw Mickey got paid like over a quarter of a million pounds for for a day's work. And I thought to myself, man, if I, I work hard at this, man, I could bring in a rain check in like that. And listen, I was very blessed to be given that opportunity uh, to start a film you know people work 10 years to get an opportunity like that and obviously I jumped the bandwagon but listen I've been out to Los Angeles you know I've done my masters in acting and I've done I've done my road work you know I, I take it really really seriously uh, I didn't at first because it didn't quite hit me but I realised when I retired from rugby what I wanted to do is get into the acting Yeah. Uh, and now you know I've just produced my first film that comes out in March uh, imperative, which is a crime thriller, and it's my first lead in the film. So, you know, the the future's bright, man. But it took a lot of lot of hard work, and uh, you know, like I said, I bring a lot of um, the characteristics and all the work ethic I, I, I brought from rugby league into everything else I do, and that's yeah. including uh, acting. And yeah, what so. what what I love about it as well, Keith. Uh, I mean, there was there was so much. I, could, I mean, I could have stopped your conversation so many times and spoke about m- many stories within in what you were saying. But ultimately, like your personality's got you there, your drive, your attitude, etc. But that one conversation with him has led to so much, and I think that's so important for mm. people to listen to because networking and taking opportunities yeah. when other people are a little bit afraid of having that conversation can open so many yeah. doors. It's su- such an important message to get to people. Mm. So yeah, I admire that. Um, one of the things or one of the movies or, or, or let's say um, series that you're going to, people are going to know is, is Peaky Blinders. That's obviously been a, mm. a phenomenal thing on, on Netflix. And I've got to be honest, I fucking love it. It was just so powerful. It was quite <laughs> motivational. It was quite, there were so many different mm. things I could say about it. What was that like working on, on the set of Peaky Blinders? Yeah, well, that was great. That, that came about through my agent. Uh, I got the role, but at the time, you know, I was in the mix of a bit of depression. I wasn't really being myself. Uh, 2014, I got I got the gig for Peter Blind. He's, he was actually a speaking role, and I rocked up there, and 
you know, I didn't sleep well that much that night. I wasn't disciplined and I wasn't really focused and I wasn't ready to make that next step to go into the acting world. And uh, I understand that now because, you know, you need to go into it wholeheartedly and look after your body and look after yourself. And because, you know, your body is your instrument. And I did that. And it was, yeah, it was good fun. You know, I was on set and, you know, first time I've been on a, a big production because the one skin traffic, obviously we had Michael Madsen in there. We had Daryl Anna. Uh, we had Julia Roberts' brother playing in that, Alan Ford. We had Bricktop. Uh, Bricktop from Snatch was in there. There was some really big Tom stars. Hardy as well. But it wasn't a match. Who? Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy, yeah. Tom Hardy, yeah, Peaky Blinders. And, and Tom's somebody who, who I admired uh, when when I was coming through, when I was, you know, when I was watching actors and people who I, who I like to watch, uh, Tom Hardy. Uh, I think I like his early stuff and that, but, you know, with Tom Hardy, you're just getting Tom Hardy every single time you watch him. He's doing his voice or he's doing something stupid. Uh, yeah. But I, I'm a massive, I like Daniel Craig. I know people say I look like him, but I'm not you do sure a I bit. Like he looks like You him. do a little bit, yeah. Yeah, but... <laughs> Yeah, like a, a younger version. Uh, but he's he's just uh, he's just a guy that gets it done. You know, he's, he, he looks like he's a hardworking guy, and he's not about you know social media and all that kind of stuff. Like, you know, if someone said to me, "Would you want to watch a rock movie or a Daniel Craig movie?" I'd want to watch a Daniel Craig movie hundred times out of a hundred. Because the rock to me is. Uh, He's not someone who he just plays himself basically, and, he, and he's making money, and that's good on him. But you know, for for an, an actor's ability, you want somebody who plays different roles. Versatile, yeah. Yeah, well, like my my character in Imperative, he's he's a guy that loses his wife. Uh, his wife and his daughter get kidnapped, and he becomes a recluse to do. He becomes an addict. He's pretty messed up, you know. Any man would be. You know, people can relate to that. You losing your wife and never seeing him again. Uh, but he, he, you know, he drinks alcohol every day. He takes cocaine. He, you know, he, to, to to block out the pain, basically. But what he feels inside, he tries to numb it by self-medicating with drugs and alcohol. And you know, a lot of people can relate to that. But the thing is, he's a good he's a good copper. You know, he's tough. But really, you know, inside him, he's he's soft. He's got a good moral compass, but he doesn't trust anybody. And, you know, there's, there's that mental health aspect to the film. Uh, and that's been a very challenging challenging role for me, but I've really enjoyed it. And the, the dialogue in it is quite quite heavy, you know. And if you look at some big stars, they don't have much dialogue at all. You mm. know, like Jesse Statham or Daniel Craig, you won't see him saying being long-ass Hamlet dialogue messages or you know speeches they're just like you know straight to the point so it's sync and I think obviously you know sometimes you need to for, for certain roles if you're going to be an alpha male you need to be sync not dabbling on and obviously a, a lot of the a lot of the work is, is the material a lot of it's all about the writing really because you could do a film and if the writing's garbage and it doesn't make sense then how you can be a carriage, you know what I mean? And, and the kid who I worked with in Imperative, believe it or not, he's only 19, but he is so ahead of the game, man. He's such a whole soul. And I knew I had to keep him on the straight and narrow because a couple of years ago, you know, he struggled with addiction and stuff. But I saw some of his work. And I thought, if I get this kid focused, he can, he can, we can do something pretty special. And that's how Imperative came about. So... <clears throat> 
Yeah. Solid stuff, mate. So just to sort of um, round off the conversation, because I always felt that I was going to talk to you about your rugby career, obviously your acting, which we've touched on. And then finally, you're also a businessman. Um, I see here that you're... um, you're uh, setting up a, a CBD company as well as uh, another yep. brand off the off the side of it. Funny enough, my brand yep. partner for the podcast and also my sponsor is a is a CBD company called the uh, Woods Co-op, uh, based up in Manchester. Right. They're really really cool. So I know a little bit about it, but I'm not an expert. So how come your how come that's the, your new venture, your new sort of enterprise? Yeah, well, obviously you know we own a suppose we've uh, a nerve pain. Uh, and she was taking all kinds of painkillers, uh, gabapentin, naproxen, uh, morphine, which basically takes years off your life, you know. And, and me seeing her like in a zombie-like state, I knew something had to change. And that's when I reached out to a, a guy who owned a CBD company. We got the CBD <coughs> off him. Uh, it was a very strong, there were no THC in the CBD. It wasn't Rick Stimson oil. <coughs> it was just CBD, but a very strong concentrated CBD. And I said to my mistress, listen, let's try this CBD, baby. And let's try to get you off these, off these painkillers. Because the thing is with, with Riona, she has got a, she's, she's not a full tear. And that's why she can get up, get up on her feet because there's still signals going down to her legs. Even though she can't feel them, there's still signals going down there. So what happens with the downside to that, you get horrendous nerve pain. Nerve, you know, your nerve pain is, is, is ridiculous. Yeah. So I got on the CBD and, uh, we only pretty much cold turkey for six weeks and she was really, really poorly for around five weeks. Wow. And she's not been on it ever since. That made me want to invest in a company and create my own brand, which is Project Mason. I reached out to a guy called Adam Tracy. Uh, he already had uh, CBD health relief. He's already got a company, and he also deals with Rick Stimsonall, which is the THC and the uh, CBD, which is saving people's lives all over the world. Uh, it's helping people with, with nerve pain. It's, it's, it's killing tumors. It's amazing stuff. I can send you some details about the Rick Stimsonall. You will absolutely love it. If you can't sleep well, take the Rick Stimsonall. You have the best night's sleep ever. If you're suffering with nerve pain, the Rick Stimsonall is, is fantastic for that. And is it on, so per, we got it on per, that. per pets? Is it is it that, like droplets? Yeah, you've got like a syringe, which is the car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Syringe, and then you've got obviously you've got the drops, which you put three or four drops, and we've got the edibles as well. Uh, so yeah, we set up. We had the idea. We want to. We're doing the alkalized distilled CBD water, which is going to be the the biggest biggest seller for us. Project Mason. The bottle looks like a you know Voss. You know Voss. Yeah, bottle. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it looks just like a Voss bottle. We've got three different strengths of the Project Mason CBD, 500 milligram, 1,000 milligram, 1,500 milligram. We've got uh, roll-ons. We've got muscle rub. We've got uh, muscle cream. We've got protein, CBD protein bar, CBD protein shakes. Uh, and we're looking at we're looking at launching. That's took us quite a while now because obviously with COVID coming in, everything stopped. Uh, but now things are starting to pick up again. We're looking at launching just before Christmas. So, I'll send you some samples down if you want, mate. There's no problem there. Yeah, powerful. Thank you very much. So, okay, just a few more things. And what's the future for you then, uh, Keith? Like business, acting, where do you see yourself in the next yeah. five or ten years? Well, obviously, I've got, you know, with, with Ruby Blood, I didn't, I didn't mention Ruby Blood, but I, I created the first ever Ruby League comic uh, called Ruby Blood, which features actual Joe Carl Zaggis in there as a character. All right. Uh, we've got 40 of the best players involved in the comic. 
uh, the actual kid in the comic is based on my life. So it's showing you a young kid who has to overcome adversity and has to overcome struggles to be a star player. And, uh, you know, I said to the artist, you know, he came with the idea, why don't we make about you? Because your life is so inspiring of where you've come from and what you've done after that. And uh, we thought, yeah, let's make it a little bit autobiographical. And I basically got Super League to endorse it. I went to Super League, which is like the Premier League, and I spoke to Robert Elston. I says, you know, would you want to endorse this comic? It's like it's never been done before. And, you know, there's a massive fan base out there for comics, and why not make these players into superstars, into superheroes? So I reached out to some of the best players from all over the world and uh, asked them if I could use the name and the likeness, which they all agreed to, which was a masterstroke. You know, I just came up with, like I said, making them bold decisions, not thinking about it, just asking them. And obviously most of them knew who I was from playing. Mm. Uh, so then Ruby Blood, we launched Ruby Blood. The second one's coming out next year, uh, the edition. And I did a deal with O'Neill's. O'Neill's is one of the biggest, it's the biggest Irish sporting band in, over in Ireland. It's been around for hundreds of years. They came to me and we collaborated with the business side of things. And I've got my own sports line, uh, Keith Mason's Ruby Blood which we have three different plain jerseys. We have the tracksuits, we have the bottom shorts and all that kind of stuff. And that was in space of six months of, of launching Ruby Blood. Now, Ruby Blood was originally a film script, which I'd written, uh, but we want to do an anime and we want to do figurines. So that's the future regarding Ruby Blood. We've got the comic, hopefully the film, the anime, figurines, and obviously we've got the sports line. Uh, film-wise, imperative. That's going to come out in March, April. So you're invited to the premiere, bro, if you want to come up. Oh, I'd love We're to, mate. We're looking at having the premiere. Zaggy there as well. So the premiere will be probably uh, March, April 2021. That'll be in Leeds. I'm going to hold you to that, uh, Keith, we'll- mate. I'll be up there. Yeah, get yourself up, bro, man. Yeah, you're invited. So if that comes off the premiere, then we're going to distribute the film worldwide. We're going to distribute with uh, a co-producer, Dizonic Chen, who's, who's directed me in another film in, in February, March in London called Cookster. He's going to distribute to Indonesia. We're going to get the film onto Blu-ray. And we're going to hit all the film festival circuit. Now, we're looking at doing a TV series for Imperative based around the main character, which is Jack Sullivan, DCI Sullivan. Uh, we really want to triple down on, 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 on that series. Obviously, I've got other film roles coming in, which, which is not my production, but this is my production. And I just, uh, I just want to keep improving, bro. You know, obviously, grow my brand, my CBD brand. Uh, grow myself, uh, grow as an actor. You know, five, ten years is, is is a long time as an actor. You know, I'm going to learn so much. And, uh, you know, ultimately, my most important thing is to, is to see my, my family flourish and see Riona hopefully run again. And also, we have got uh, a 10 10 challenge in February, which is covered by This Morning Britain, where we'll be covering 100 miles in 10 days, raising money for. The motor neuron disease company, uh, not neuron disease charity, uh, stroke, uh, stroke association, and the Keith and Rihanna Foundation, where we're going to help people in similar situations to us. So that's one is going to be going to it's going to be tough, but we're going to we're going to get through it. So basically, Rihanna will be in the wheelchair. I'll have a harness around me, and I'll be basically running or walking around a, a track for ten miles for ten days, so hundred miles. Powerful. Mate, you're the definition of a go-getter. So if someone if someone yeah. stumbled across this interview, Keith, what kind yeah. of uh, advice, let's say someone young and they're, they're looking or listening mm. to this podcast and uh, they're getting a bit of inspiration from it, what, what kind of 
messages can you give to people going into business, going into acting, going into, mm. I don't know, just becoming the best version of, of their self? Because you've been there and done it so many times over, what advice can you give to people? Never let anybody tell you what you can't achieve. Never let anybody tell you that you can't achieve whatever you want to achieve, whatever you put your mind to. Uh, you know, sometimes in life, sometimes you have to break away from the crowd, you know, because it's so easy to fall into that mediocrity of life, you know, do what everybody else is doing. And I know deep down inside that most people, and I know this anyway, everybody's got greatness inside of them. You just have to find it. And when you find it, never let it go. And you've got to work hard. You've got to persevere. It might take you five years. It might take you 10. It might take you 15. But in the process of you getting to that ultimate goal where you want to get to, you're going to become a, a better person. You're going to build upon your character. You know, you're going to get knocked back. You're going to get knocked down. But if you keep moving forward and keep pushing on, you're going to become a better version every single time of yourself. And I think, I think our ultimate goal in life is to be the best we can possibly be and share it with the world. People see, they see a little bit of my story and some bits are inspiring. But the good thing about me, I never get ahead of myself because you're only as good as your last game. You're only as good as your last film. You've always got to keep moving forward and keep improving. I've got so much improvement in, in me and sometimes I get frustrated because I think, you know, I'm not there. But you know what? If you make all the right decisions, I think discipline is the number one. And don't be scared of failure because fail yourself forward because life is about failing. That's when you learn. How are you going to not? Le- are you going to learn if you win all the time? Mm. Are you going to learn if you don't put yourself <clears throat> in stressful situations, taking yourself out of your comfort zone? And like you say, you got one life, man. Go get it. Pick a goal. Go after it with everything you've got. But ultimately, you know, it's about being a good person as well. It's working on yourself because you can be an awesome athlete, but you can be a shit dad at home. You could be have a million, ten million dollars in the bank, and you could be unhappy. Mm. And for me, you know, working out is a big one. Working out and, and taking care of your body because you need this body to live in. You know, and people forget. You see millionaires and billionaires who are overweight and. You know, you think, well, how, 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 how would he deal with a crisis? Yeah. You know, you know, never listen to somebody who's, you know, overweight or giving you advice about anything about food or, or training. But just set a good, set a good example, man. You know, I think I do set a good example. You know, I'm glad that people have seen me not not the athlete, but the person behind the scenes who takes care of his family, mm. who is there for his partner. When someone walked out on her, I came in and I helped her, and not just her, her four children. You know, that's one of my biggest achievements, bro. Solid. It's helping yeah. other people. Yeah, that's solid. Helping other people, bro. Helping people rise. You know, that's, that's, that's the best. Yeah. It really is, mate. And just take care of yourself. Take care of yourself and be patient. It doesn't have to happen overnight. It could be five years, it could be 10 years, but every single day, just be working a little bit on it, working a little bit on it. Wherever your goal is, be working a little bit on it but you know ultimately it's about being happy in it and I think people become happy when they're true and you know they stay away from negativity and be around people who lift you up I know it's I know it's a lot of information but you know if you listen to it over a few times you would probably get it because a lot of people are happy right now Mm. a lot of people are struggling yeah you know they're struggling because they're not living the life they want to live 
or they're scrolling through Instagram too much and they're seeing all these people living all these lives. But you haven't seen the struggle they've been through for 25 years to get to that point. It just takes effort. It takes work. It takes. I mean, look at Kevin Sinfield. He's just run seven marathons in seven days to raise money for Rob Burrow, his ex-teammate. You know, that takes effort, doesn't it? Of course it does. Course and it he's does. a legend for that. Yeah. yeah. Um, Keith, where can we uh, find you if people wanted to start following you? Uh, you can get me on Instagram, uh, Keith Mason underscore official. Uh, Facebook, Keith Luke Mason. Keith Mason, there's two on there. Uh, TikTok, we get, we've got nearly a million people followers on that. Uh, yeah. Keith Luke Mason again. A lot of the videos on there are, are me and Riona, you know, uh, very inspiring videos. And uh, yeah, that's it, guys. Top, top man. Keith, one more, one more thing. So my yeah. ca- catchphrase, my quote, my ethos mm. is be happy, never content. I've even built my own gym at my house and I've got a hashtag up on the wall. And when I'm training, it reminds me how I need to live every single day. Um, if I were yeah. to ask you your interpretation of be happy, never content, what does that mean to you? Uh, for a start, I like that. I like that. You're saying be happy, but always be in a state of wanting to grow. That's what you're saying, in it? Yeah. Be always in a state of wanting to get better because being content is like, it's like Christmas Day having a pudding. You, you round all your family. Mm. I understand what you're saying. I think as human beings, we can push ourselves to the absolute... You'd never imagine how far we can push ourselves. And, uh, you know, we have got a duty. Everybody on this planet has got a duty to to be the best we can be. And then ultimately, inspire somebody else to do the same. Yeah. And my quotation, very similar to yours, is no sacrifice, no glory. Because there's no glory without sacrifice. And sacrifice and discipline will get you where you need to go. And discipline means eating the right food, getting the right sleep, uh, everything. Being kind, being courteous. And your life will change. If you get up and just switch your mind to one, a full 180 for the day and just be kind to people, just just go away from your normal habits, how you speak to people, how you, you, know, you connect with people and how you speak to yourself. You know, make it positive because we all have that little chatter in his in his head. Every single day, we're like, nah, not today. You're too tired. You don't need to. You know, you know yourself. Like, why am I thinking about it? Just do it. Yeah. And it's it's overcoming that little inner voice in your head. Just overcome it. Just think, you know what? You're not real, bro. I'm gonna go for it. But you know, it takes it takes a tremendous amount of effort. It takes persistence and, and discipline to be the best you can be. Uh. And and have, have, good, have good people around you. It's very important to have good people around you. People who support your dreams, see people who want you to win. Mm. You know, instead so of turning around to someone and saying, oh, I've just achieved this. And they go, oh, right, okay. You know, we don't want this type of people. We want people who go, awesome. I love that. Keep it up. You know, encourage each other. People don't encourage each other, man. You know, they don't encourage each other. But, I mean, that's why we're speaking because there's not many people who do stuff like that. Yeah. The reason why, because it takes effort. It takes effort. It takes something from you. Yeah. And people aren't willing to give it because they think, oh, well, if I give them that, then, you know, they might not give it. No, just, just you be the example. Be a leader. 
Powerful stuff, oh, mate. Well, uh, listen, thank you for yeah. your time. I know you've got to get off to your wonderful family. I really, really appreciate everything yeah. that you shared on here. No doubt it's going to give people a lot of encouragement to go out there and be the better version of themselves. This podcast is going to be out in two weeks' time, so I'll obviously be sharing it with you, Keith. Um, yeah. And yeah, let's stay, in, let's stay in communication, bro. Really, 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 really happy that we got this podcast done. You're welcome. You're welcome, mate. I'm sorry I couldn't be down there, but uh, I'm sure... 2021 if I'm down in London I'll come and we can do a part two yeah nice one thank you very much maybe bring Joe, oh Cal- Co- Joe Kalzaki down with you and we can do a freeway conversation <laughs> yeah maybe yeah well, he, well if he's in, I mean he invites down to let you he's got, a, he's got a place down in London but uh, if that came about then yeah sure we can do that mate double whammy top man alright have a great night yeah be All happy right, never content you nice one you. bye